really live. All right, everybody. Welcome to Apologetics Live. And we have a new person here. Uh, Andrew's not here, and that's always a good thing. And so uh, we have Eli Ayala, and you can see. Go ahead and laugh. Say, say hello. Hello, hello. And that's Eli Ayala, and Ayala is Arabic for, yeah, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And uh, <laughs> so it's, you know, it's what it is. And uh, I've known Eli for a while. He's a good guy. Anyway, people will be joining us, and Eli's new at this. He's a newbie at uh, at simple stuff like this, and <laughs> it's not that hard to do, but he has trouble because there's there's some issues. But, uh, you know, that's all right. Everybody's got issues except me. So uh, we're going to be waiting for people to come in. Now, what I'm doing, Eli, to let you know, is oh, we've got nine watching. Good. Um, I'm taking that URL. <clears throat> and I can give it to you if you want. Tell you what I'll do. I'll email that to you as well. I should have done that earlier. Um, and uh, it's you can you can actually make another browser where you can see people chatting. But what we what we've done, I've put this up on on the CARM website so that people can get in what's called a participation, can come into this room and they can talk to us. But on the other hand, there's going to be people who. Uh, don't want to participate in this direct context, and what they're going to do is um, actually, you know what you could do? I, why, why even send it to you? Uh, it's on the CARM website. So I just I updated it. So if you go to the right near the uh, Apologetics uh, Live, I mean Apologetics, uh, under the newsletter, you go down past the uh, radio section, it says Apologetics Live. One says participate, and one says watch. You're already participating, so all you got to just click on the watch, and it'll open up another window, and then you can see that people are uh, are in. We've got 16 people now, and then in that text area, they sometimes ask questions and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I see Apologetics Live. I don't see a link to click on. Participate, the word participate, and on then the, the right. watch. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I see on the right your newsletter. To go underneath that, Match Lick Live Radio. Okay. And then Apologetics Live, right? I see it. Apologetics Live, but you can't. I can't click on it. It has like a. Does it say next is? What's the date for next is? Uh, two twenty-eight. Refresh the browser. Refresh your. Oh, browser. there we go. Yeah. Look at that. See, look, Internet one hundred and one. <laughs> okay, there we go. Participate and watch. Okay. Click the watch. A window will open up, and then you can see people on the right-hand side who are, are adding stuff in. The oh, KD no, really? uh, and then commercials will blast with. We don't. I don't know if we do any commercials. There we go. There you are. All right. There you are. I get to see your face twice. That's that's okay. definitely a good thing. Um, mute that. Yeah. And so what we can do is uh, you can – I'm giving him a play-by-play. -play. He's supposed to kind of co-host with me, folks, and uh, it's good to open this up for him as well. Open to Bay 365. We cannot choose God because of our sin nature. We are enemies of God. That's true, Tommy. But nevertheless, uh, so what I want you to do is introduce yourself really fast, and then we'll talk about some stuff. And then sure. if, and people want to call in, they can come into the participation room and they can they can get on the mic. They have a whatever and a camera. They can talk. And all this is being recorded or they can ask questions in the chat area and we can work it that way. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, well, my name's Elias Ayala. Nobody calls me Elias. Everyone calls me Eli. And uh, a lot of people find it uh, cool to kind of um, tell the story about how I got into apologetics. Um, I actually lent out my. 
iPod to my brother-in-law to DJ a wedding. And so he actually emptied my iPod and replaced it with all his content. And so after the wedding was over, because he used the iPod, set it up to giant speakers, you know, they kind of had the reception and stuff. And when I, when I went home, I had all of his content in my iPod. And so um, it was through um, browsing through the stuff that he left in there. I, I kind of uh, listened to the Greg Bonson, Gordon Stein debate that way. And I was like, who's this guy, Greg Bonson? I learned about William Lane Craig. And um, I think before that, I was listening to Carm for, for quite some time. Um, but that kind of opened the door uh, to apologetics. There's some more to that story, but um, some people find that quite interesting. <laughs> Oh, you were talking. I, I lost interest there for a second. I don't know yeah, what that yeah, was. Yeah, it was yeah. one of those things. <laughs> so you guys could tell that we know each other, and we I, I insult him a lot. Um, but that's what I do with my friends. Um, so you and I have had a lot of good conversations over the, what, years now we've been talking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, I forget talked, how long. I forget how long it was. It's been years. You yeah, know, been I wouldn't say 10, but I'd say more like anywhere from three to five, I'm getting that, that impression, three to five years. I remember the first time you picked up the phone and I was surprised that you picked up the phone when I called the office. I was, I was starstruck because when, you know, back in the day I, I used to go through Carm and I, I thought the website was awesome. And, and, you know, I've listened to your podcast for like a million years and I was like, let me, you know, let me call the office. And you picked up, I was like, this is Matt. And you're like, yeah. And then I was like, oh my gosh, so <laughs> the rest was history. And I haven't stopped bothering you with phone calls ever since. It's right. But annoying. It's really been horrible. Yes. So I taught on Friday last week at a church and uh, this guy's an adjunct professor at Liberty. And he, he said, look, dude, I want to meet you. And I, oh, okay. He goes, well, I, you're he goes, people at Liberty quote Carm all the time. And he said, it's just, if it's a CARM reference, it's a good reference. And so they do that, and uh, you wanted to meet me, so that was good. And today, I went into a restaurant, uh, fast food, Chipotle. My wife loves Chipotle. And uh, she's in the car. I had to go in there and get some food. And I'm talking to the people behind the counter. And this one guy goes, oh, you sound like somebody I, I, I know. And I said, okay. And he goes, are you Matt Slick? And I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, I just listen to you on the radio. So he was happy to meet me and stuff like that. So it was kind of fun, you know whatever people are impressed until they spend five minutes with me then that quickly goes away that's that's what i've discovered all right what are some of the things we've talked about because there's a long list Hmm. we've talked about transcendentals we've talked about the issues of canon we've talked about the difference between vantillian apologetics and clarkian apologetics axioms ultimate presuppositions worldviews atheism inconsistency logic uh, Molinism, opatheism. Oh, a lot of Molinism. We talk a lot about Molinism um, mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, folks. If you guys have any questions, you can either participate in the room and ask us a question, or you can go into the the uh, just the uh, chat part of the watch it, and I can read a question or something like that. Or we can just talk because some of the conversations we've had have been pretty good, and I wish that some of them had been recorded. And um, so you'll call me up. What's a typical question you'll ask me? Um, <laughs> well, I usually call you up to talk about the topic of Molinism and the logical priority of God's counterfactual knowledge or something like that. Why don't we talk about that since you brought that one up? It seems to be okay. right there. Okay, okay. so I'm going to hang the ball to you and uh, you tell us what's Molinism. Uh, Molinism is a view of God's omniscience. And Molinists understand um, God's 
uh, knowledge in three logical moments that can be kind of categorized as God's could knowledge, God's would knowledge, and God's will knowledge. So, for example, God has what's called natural knowledge, his knowledge of everything that could happen. God has his middle knowledge, uh, his knowledge of counterfactuals, everything that would happen if certain states of affairs would obtain. And then you have God's decree in between God's middle knowledge and his free knowledge, which is his knowledge of what will, in fact, actually be once he decrees uh, a world that he desires to actualize. Okay, so Molinists understand God's knowledge in those three logical moments, um, and um, they use that system to answer the philosophical conundrum of how to reconcile God's sovereignty and human freedom and responsibility. So which one of those, uh, natural, middle, or free knowledge? Which is the main one? Not or, it would be and. So God would have uh, natural knowledge, middle knowledge, and free knowledge. Yes, but which one of them is most known as in the context of Molinism? That would be God's middle knowledge. Right. And so... uh, and so what that is, is is God knows what any free choice will be of anybody in any circumstance. Basically, that's what it is. Right. It would be God's knowledge of counterfactuals, and this is important, logically prior to the decree. So it's God's knowledge of what would happen if he were to decree a certain state of affairs. And, uh, okay, so instead of me asking questions, let's just talk like we normally do. Sure. <laughs> Because I don't like that, and I think the problem with it, and I think the problem lies in the idea that God seems to be reactionary to the idea. He knows what will happen under different circumstances, even if he's logically decreed them. Then he knows what certain free will creatures will do in certain circumstances, and it seems to be, and I've had trouble understanding this from various Molinists, it seems to be then that what's happening is God will then decide what to decree based on what he knows will happen if he decrees under certain circumstances, based on their libertarian free will. Right, but I, I, a Molinist wouldn't say that God is responding because this counterfactual knowledge is knowledge of what a person would do if he were to create that person. If God didn't desire to create such a person who would do something in that counterfactual situation, then God would just actualize a different world in which the person would do what he desires. So so it's not a reactionary perspective where God's saying, well, man's going to do this, then this is what I'm going to do, because God can choose to actualize someone or not, or he could actualize the world or not. Yeah, but I still see it as being reactionary because he knows what person will, the person will do in situation A versus mm-hmm. situation B. So he knows which ones they will be- choose. Which one, Bob, Bob, okay, Bob's going to counterfactual world of, uh, potential world of A, potential world of B. He likes what he's going to do in B over A, so God creates B because he'll behave in a way he wants him to. That, to me, still is the idea of God being reactionary. I guess my issue with Molinism is not so much the reactionary issue, since some people can kind of weave them their position and kind of explain that, whether we agree or not. It's really this issue of counterfactual truths that have truth values independent of God's decree. In other words, how could something be true if God doesn't decree? So there there are these truth values that are true independent of the will of God. And so this is, this is related to the common objection against Molinism, which is, which is called the grounding objection. What grounds the truth values of these things? Um, I hear this from atheists. That kind of answer is from atheists. They say the same thing. They use grounding theology or grounding philosophy all the time. 
Sure, sure. But but uh, in defense of the Molinists, the Molinists would say, because people would ask, like, what, what grounds these truths? Um, the Molinists will sometimes say that they're not required to provide an answer to that because uh, – and, and, and I know you, you kind of made a little smirk there. I'm not a Molinist, but I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that since what we're asking is we're asking the Molinists to explain some aspect of God's infinite knowledge, which – can be very mm-hmm. difficult. Um, so, you know, Molinists actually relish in the fact that Calvinism, for example, has its mysteries and Molinism answers questions that apparently Calvinists can't answer. And so they shift that place of mystery, maybe in how are these truths grounded or some other aspect of the system. Well, I would say that, yeah, they can answer some things Calvinists can't, but they do so incorrectly. Or at the expense of some other important doctrine. Right. They, I, I say they do it improperly. Because right. ultimately, what I see, Molinism, to me, if I were to really dumb it down and distill it down, you get the scrapings off the pot, what's, it really, what's left over is this. Now, what Molinism teaches is libertarian free will, and God will decide and decree certain things to do by his logically prior knowledge based upon what people will do in counterfactual situations. Say that again? That. Say the statement you just said. Oh, said the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> You're okay. such a troll. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you said say that again. Okay, that. You know. um, it's not judge. It's bad news. Okay, so libertarian free will is not compatibilist free will, which is the reform position. But libertarian free will is the basic idea that an individual, a sinner even, is simply capable of making choices I, I, this is not I'm not going to leave the sentence as this is how it truly represents. But for now, that uh, the sinner can then make a, a choice that's, so to speak, contrary to a sinful nature. And all he needs is the right circumstance information. He can come. Well, to I would be careful in defining libertarian free will, uh, including in the definition, this issue of what man can or cannot choose given their sinful nature, because the libertarian freedom is defined as a particular view of freedom, it doesn't necessarily have to automatically apply to issues of soteriology and how man can respond and things like that. That's really important because Molinism is sometimes falsely seen as some kind of soteriological system, kind of a right. Molinism is just a view of God's omniscience as, as Kirk McGregor, the, uh, he, who wrote the um, biography on, on Louis de Molina. I think he makes a very important point that Molinism is just a view of God's omniscience. What you do with Molinism can have um, can affect certain areas of soteriology and things like that. And that's why some people are open to Molinism because of its flexibility. You can be a Molinist and lean more towards an Arminian understanding of soteriological issues, or you can lean more towards a Calvinistic understanding of soteriological issues. But there is no necessary pull in either direction. You can be quite creative if, if you wish uh, to hold yeah. to the Molinist view. Yeah, I would say they're creative indeed, and their leaning is is uh, is, is incorrect. They should they should stick with what the scriptures teach. Libertarianism is the idea, and this is what I would break it up because we have to define our term. But libertarian free will, this idea that the human being, even in his sinful state, mm-hmm. is capable of finding God. All he needs, and this is an oversimplification, but is the proper information and circumstances, and he's able to make that choice. Now that's uh, the that's a 
robust but very base idea of what libertarian free will is because that's what it comes down to ultimately where compatibilism would say no that within the doctrine of total depravity they're not capable of being able to make that choice they're not at liberty to do that but libertarian i mean what world compatibilism is is that man's free will is compatible with god's sovereignty libertarianism says not really and there's variations in this we've talked about this right and but those variations are super important because yes, they can be yes they can be talking about libertarian free will but even that term is not specific enough since as you if you remember your discussion with um dr kirk mcgregor that there is uh, hard libertarianism and there's soft libertarianism and the issue with soft libertarianism right. is that when you say the definition really fast it sounds a lot like compatibilism <laughs> well that's uh, why we've talked before and i said soft libertarianism sounds exactly like uh, compatibilism right right and you said that's right it does it does and sound then, very much like it yes and then you'll talk to some uh, Molinists who know this kind of terminology, and they'll, they'll say, well, the verb tense doesn't mean that. It means this. And that's why we can go this way instead of this way. And I get really annoyed with that kind of thing because I think what they're trying to do is give too much to the human being. Because look at this. If God is going to look into the future logically prior, not in a temporal sense, folks. He doesn't look to see what's going to happen in different universes. But the things can only exist if God decrees them to exist. So those potential universes only exist in the mind of God. They've not been actualized. So there's potential worlds and one actual world. And so he knows all variables of all circumstances because he would create them. And no matter what universe he created, all of those variables are under his sovereign decrees and ordination. And things would happen in certain ways. So that's just that's if you disagree with that, then you got to we need to talk Bible. But here's the thing. If there's universes, uh, one, two, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We've got universe uh, one through ten. We have ten universes. And Bob in universe one is going to do one action and universe two a different and so on and so forth. And God wants to pick out what Bob's going to do because that's what he wants Bob to do. And he's only going to do it in universe number seven. And then if God picks universe number seven, based on his factual middle knowledge of what he'll do in his free will creatureness or libertarianism in that context, then how is it not true that God is reactionary? <laughs> well, I, the the difficulty about these discussions is it's it's actually hard to actually put into words what one might think about these things without sounding jumbled. I mean, you get into some philosophical distinctions and things like that. Um, but ultimately, if if someone wants to hold to Molinism, which Molinists that I've that I've spoken to, um, they they want to do it because uh, they think it's biblical. Um, and we have to be very careful too. And I think this is where the discussion needs to take place. Um, because um, Molinism, its popularity has come uh, from the philosophical realm, uh, the works like uh, from people like Alvin Plantiga and William Lane Craig. Um, Molina's works uh, have not been fully translated. The parts that have and have become very popular are those philosophical issues. But as you would understand that Molina actually gave a bunch of biblical reasons why he held to his view. And I why think he, but why did he start Molinism from Molina? Why did he start it though? Yes. The, yes. He started to give a response uh, for the reason to give a response to the reformed understanding, but that doesn't make it false as you would That's understand. True. The, the he was a devout Roman Catholic who wanted to refute the idea of God's sovereignty. And in order to do that, what he did was he tried to develop a method in order to elevate man's freedom. Well, I don't think he did it for the purpose of elevating man's freedom. 
No, I in order, no, the purpose was to deal against, to work against the Reformation movement. And one of the tools he developed was the, I believe, the exaltation of man's freedom to a place that the scripture does not. De- uh, right. Reveal. That would be your interpretation of yes. what he was trying to do. But Molina most definitely would not have understood himself to be doing that. He, he really believed that the pillars of God's meticulous sovereignty and man's genuine freedom were, were biblical truths. And so he tried to reconcile them in a way that you don't injure one of those doctrines, which he found to be biblically based. Yeah, but it can be biblically based because God is sovereign even over our choices. He opens the heart of the king, where, moves the heart of the king where he wishes to go. <laughs> yeah, opens one. yeah. yeah I, but, but I'm, you know, I'm all this stuff, God's sovereign. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And. Jesus could do nothing of his own initiative. He could only do that which the Father decreed that he do, and he right. had freedom. So that's a perfect example of, of compatibilism. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I just. But well, also, yeah. there's another another important distinction too. Demonstrating that we're not completely free in one context does not mean that someone doesn't have libertarian freedom in a different context. So, for example, sure. you have you have some people who believe that you know God could could violate man's freedom, but that doesn't mean he always does. So what you would it mean to violate? To... What would it mean to violate for God to violate man's freedom? What well, yeah, mean? well, there we go. That seems to presuppose some kind of autonomy, autonomy within the freedom of man, which we would we would reject, obviously. But but in libertarianism, there is an element of autonomy of man's will. De- depending on who you talk to, <laughs> I know <laughs> yes. on what day of the week it is, because some will say that it isn't independent in a sense of a seity almost. No. Where others will say, well, it's not because we're contingent and the contingencies affect. But even then, the idea of libertarianism uh, is the idea of complete freedom to be able to decide, and that God is looking at these situations in a when, counterfactual no- uh, basis. When you say complete freedom, though. I would not equate, say, for example, a soft libertarian view with an auto- an, an a full out autonomous will, because because on soft libertarianism, man is limited by his nature. It's just that unlike the Calvinist position, the soft libertarian would say that there are multiple choices that he could make libertarianly that yeah. are consistent with his nature. So there's still a limiting. There's not a complete yeah. and utter autonomy on the soft libertarian view. Right, and that's why I say soft libertarianism is similar to the biblical doctrine of of man's total depravity, because total depravity is a condition or teaching of the, the nature of man, but it has a, it is an effect upon the nature of man. What's that effect? The total depravity's effect is that he won't freely choose God. Right. But in in libertarianism, the effect of total depravity does not necessitate that he can't choose God of his own. Right, 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 right. That's the difference, and that's the problem. And okay. that's what I see as as in the Molinist view of God that he's looking down the quarters of time, logically prior in his creative work and potential worlds in his mind, whatever. And he says, in that circumstance, libertarianly speaking, Bob will do this here, but not there. And so God goes, this is the one I want. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. I, I think another problem, too, is if you're going to support your view biblically, uh, for example, you get to this issue of God's counterfactual knowledge, whether it's logically prior to his divine decree or logically posterior to his divine decree. Let, let's talk about that. Because people, well, I'll come back to it. Logical priority. We'll come back to that. Yeah. You want to well, the, the, point, the point is, in order for it seems to me, in order for libertarian freedom to be true, uh, and one would be able to demonstrate that biblically, you'd have to demonstrate biblically that God has his counterfactual knowledge logically prior to his decree, but the Bible doesn't speak of those issues. So it seems as though you're right at the start inserting an external philosophical notion upon the biblical upon the biblical text. 
and I've certainly said that's the case. I said, I've said, you know, our conversations we've had, you know, mm -hmm. hours and hours over the years. I've said, in my opinion, Mullinists start with philosophy, not scripture. Yeah. But, but what I appreciated with your discussion with, with Dr. McGregor is that unlike many Mullinists, uh, for example, William Lane Craig actually thinks that the, the biblical data is underdeterminative in this, in this, this, in this particular issue that, that the Bible doesn't talk about those things, but he says that when you do assume, Molinism, it actually makes sense out of the biblical data, according to him. But Dr. McGregor actually believes that you could, you could, eh, you could almost demonstrate uh, the reality of libertarian freedom by certain verses, which seem to necessitate God having knowledge, lo uh, counterfactual knowledge, logically prior to His decree. And so he'll try to demonstrate libertarian freedom by looking at certain biblical texts. So I, whether he does it successfully is the debate, but I, I do appreciate that he attempts to do that. He thinks that the Bible um, supports that particular view of freedom and, and explores the relevant passages. Right. Now, let me inter interrupt. Um, it looks like the video is not working on at least on my computer, on my screen. For okay. Those who are just watching, not participating. So if you can still hear me, in that uh, venue, the watch you're just watching, um, could you could you type in that you can still see or what do you? Because it might just be on my end. Do you still see? Can you still hear? You, and, talk, uh, you talking, talking to me? No, I'm talking oh, okay. to the people who are in the chat side because what I see is um, an error occurred. Tree, please try again later. Uh, they might not be able to hear me. It might be. Are you talking about on YouTube or are you talking about here on the Hangout? Uh, on YouTube. And I just refreshed my screen, and it's, people are saying, see, okay, so it's it on my live. end. It, okay, yeah. it was on my end. It froze, got an error. So, all right. Uh, sorry for the disruption there, but I had to check it out. So, um, okay, so back to the issue. This is okay. what I have a problem with, um, why I have a problem with, with Molinism. Because when I look at the scriptures, I let the scriptures decide what I want to believe, what I'm going to believe, what I have to believe, what I must believe. Uh, I see the supre supremacy and sovereignty of God and his independence from us and his non-contingency on us. And that's the doctrine of aseity. Nothing about his nature, his essence, needs us or anything else for his existence. And this includes his decisions. Because if it did, it was his, if his decisions needed another source in order to influence his decisions, then he doesn't have that doctrine of aseity. And that doesn't work because then we'd have to know all possible universes and the things he would decree and a thousand possible universes. And then he's going to pick one that he wants because he knows how it's going to work in that place by those creatures with that libertarian free will. Then God is absolutely contingent in his actions and decisions on logical priority of uh, what he sees people will do. And that, to me, is a reduction of God's majesty with an exaltation of man's um, sovereignty, a man's ability and his free will. That's what I believe is why Molinism is to should be abandoned by Christians. It should not be defended because what it does inadvertently is lowers God and exalts men. That's how I ultimately perceive it. Now, how do you how do you define aseity? Aseity is God's independence of anything, his non-contingency. And it has to do with his nature and his essence of eternal existence. He's immutable, unchanging. Mm -hmm. He's eternal, Psalm 90, verse 2. He's absolute. He has existed, and this isn't the right word for using for God, but that's all we have. He's existed for forever before mm -hmm. he decided to create. So it could not be 
that any of his decisions to decide to create are based upon something he would see inside of the creation if he were to create. It has okay. to be dependent upon his nature, yeah. not anything outside of him. And so Molinism, from what I understand, and maybe I don't understand it properly, because it is difficult to understand in a lot of areas. It gets very sophisticated. But what I see Molinism to say, God's logically prior knowledge, we got to talk about that means so they understand it. His logically prior knowledge means that God will now know in different situations what's going to happen before it's happened. And then he, that's what I want. Right. Well, How not, can that not be reactionary yeah. and contingent? What I was saying, because I asked the question, because I've always understood aseity as relating to God's, um, you know, metaphysically, as, as ontologically speaking, God is not contingent upon anything external to himself for his existence. Right. I did not know, therefore, that if, if, if God, let's say, for example, if God did look into the future, and that was the, the basis upon which he creates, how that would challenge his aseity in regards to his being. You see what I'm saying? It, you're, yeah. you're, it seems as though there's a blurred line where you're now applying the idea of God looking into the future. This is not how Molinist position, but if he were, that that right. would affect his aseity. I, I don't see how that affects his aseity if we understand aseity as relating to God's being. Because the Molinist agrees God is God exists ase. His existence and his being and nature is not contingent upon anything external to himself. The Molinist right. affirms that. Yeah, and aseity is uh, uh, that God is eternally self-sufficient in himself and not dependent upon anything else. And let's just work with it and say, for his existence. Okay. okay? Let's just say that it has to do with an ontological essence of his existence. All right. Then did, would, is it okay then to say, well, wait a minute, uh, but his existence is independent of all things. His eternal nature is independent of all things, but his thoughts are not. No, his God's knowledge is not contingent upon anything external to himself. So, for example, God's knowledge of everything that could happen, that's just natural to him. God's knowledge of what would happen if he were to create, that's that's natural to him. It's not contingent. He doesn't have to, on the Molinist view, he doesn't have to create. So right. what he knows what they, you know, the, the knowledge that includes what people would do that knowledge is natural to him, and 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 he might he didn't have to choose to create them. So so his knowledge of what his counterfactual knowledge is not contingent upon other beings existing. It's just that if he were to create beings, he knows exactly what they would do. So if he knows what they would do in one circumstance, he knows what they will not do in another circumstance. Sure, that that would be. In other words, God, God, according to you know, on the Molinist view, God has an you know a, a large set of options as to everything He could create. God can create a world in which the moon is made of cheese. You've heard of it, and He knows what would happen if He were to create a world in which the moon was made out of cheese. He knows what would happen if He actualized a world in which I was wealthy, and He knows what I would freely choose if He actualized a world in which I was flat broke. Okay. Disgusted. So, so let's break it down and bring it home. All right. So okay. Bob, 10 possible worlds, 10 represents all of them, just 10 possible worlds. And in different worlds, Bob's going to choose 10 out uh, of 10 different shirts, 10 different types of shirts in his closet. And in each different world, he's going to pick a different shirt. All right. Now, so God knows what he would do in each situation. Why? 
Well, okay. So, so, so here, here, let me back up a little bit. Okay. So let's say God has an option to pick. He has more options than a hundred worlds, but let's. And by suppose- the way, folks, he does not believe in Molinism. That's okay? right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a Calvinist. So. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, which, which, by the way, I won't confuse anything. But there are Molinists who also claim to be Calvinists. They yes, don't they think. do. Right. I, I but at any rate, um, so so it, say say God has this these this large option of worlds he can actualize, and he has the potential to actualize a world in which determinism is true. Let's let's do the ten. Let's yeah, keep it yeah, simple. I'm, okay? I'm going to limit it. I'm going to limit it. All so right. if God desires to actualize a world in which creatures had libertarian freedom. Out of those, you know, we'll call the infinite options, that now limits the options to only worlds in which people would be libertarianly free, okay? And in those worlds in which God knows uh, what libertarianly free creatures would do, he knows the results, how everything would hash out. And so he picks the world that fits what he desires to accomplish, and so he sovereignly actualizes that world. And he, he picks a world which he desires to occur based on what? Based, based on... on- in other words, if I if I what desire if I desire for you, my ultimate desire is for you to go buy an ice cream at Carvel. I can choose That's a world. Desire. I can use a world in which I actualize, which you have libertarian free will, and you don't go to Carvel. If I want you to go to Carvel, I just won't actualize that world in which you use your libertarian freedom to not go to Carvel. So I'll just pick the world in which I know you would use your libertarian freedom to go precisely where I want you to go. So you retain your freedom, you retain your responsibility, and I'm sovereign because I choose a world that meets the ends that right. I desire. Right. Yeah, and I understand that's what you're saying. In other yeah. words, what I'm saying is, yeah, so God is picking picking the world to occur where you do what he wants you to do. So his decision on which world is based on your decision that he wants you to do in the first place. Well, it's based upon what he wants to accomplish. It just so happens yeah. that part of what he wants to accomplish includes you having libertarian freedom and using it in a way that accomplishes precisely what he wants. Yeah, if we're assuming libertarian freedom is true yeah. and in this world. Uh, that's, that's, yeah, that's the whole thing. Now, here's a and question. Well, Mullen, hold on, I'm going to back there. Oh, this, okay, this is okay. where it comes out. This is where people got to understand this. Sure, sure. This, is, this is the problem with the libertarian, with their Mullenism. This is how I see the problem with it, is that we have these worlds. This, back, 10 worlds, 10 shirts, okay? It doesn't really matter sure. because it's just easier for people to understand and comprehend. Let's say in this one world, what God wants is, is uh, Bob to wear a blue shirt. And let's just say that occurs in world five. Right of the ten possibilities. Let's just say that's right. the case. Why blue? Well, he's got his own reasons. But in world one, he's uh, Bob will not freely pick the blue, and nor in world two, three, four, or uh, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So God knows which ones He will do in His libertarian free sense. So now God's choice of which world to bring into actuality is based upon His knowledge of what He will do in His freedom. Bob's in his freedom. And that's why God is now bringing actualization out of potentiality based on what he sees Bob will do. So therefore, God's decision is now based upon what he sees this will happen. It's not when you say based upon it, it's based upon what he wants to accomplish in that world. It just so happens that the way he accomplishes those things includes libertarian choices along along with his own intervening. Yeah, so what it would mean is then, well, we could intervention is another thing. We could get this basic principle down. So Perfect. God wants the blue shirt to go forth because for whatever reason. That's what God wants, okay? And so he's going to pick the blue shirt in this world. So therefore, God's will and the man's will are harmonious, and God actualizes that. 
So it necessitates that God's choice is restricted to that world in which Bob will act in a manner consistent with what God wants. So he can't pick. God cannot then pick another world because it's not based just on his will, which he's sovereign in any worldview, but which it should be, but not the Molinist one. But it's because that's how this guy's going to freely behave in that world. So that's but why God's picking that one. There are many worlds. How is that not God there, there are, based on someone else? There are many worlds that may include Bob libertarianly picking a blue shirt. The blue shirt picking. No, 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 no. This is an illustration for points. There's only one out of the ten that he's going to pick the the blue. Yeah, but I don't want to limit it because limiting the the analogy is now is now putting a limitation on God. Out of these options, he only has a small amount of choices. But what am I doing? I, I I'm I'm using an illustration to teach people. Okay. All right. That's what it is. It's, as I said, remember, to teach Hang people on, wait, wait, wait. so they can understand concepts of what the basics is about the Molinist right, idea right, right. of freedom. Because this is where it comes down. Once they get this, they go, oh, I see what Matt's saying. I see what the issue potentiality is. Then we can talk about the interactability of God in a worldview. And then we get back to the libertarian versus compatibilist worldview. Okay. Okay. I got you. Yeah, so so I I I I'm, hmm, I guess I'd have to revisit that the because one one of the best books out there if, if people are struggling with this topic, especially if you're a Calvinist, um, because I think in terms of a Calvinistic framework, so I'm not looking at Molinism independent of anything else. Uh, Molinism presented from when I study these things presented a challenge to my Calvinism, and so I'm always looking at Molinism and Calvinism side by side. And if anyone is interested in kind of tackling the issue, um, Kenneth Keithley, who's a professor at Southeastern um, uh, Seminary down in um, Wake Forest, um, he wrote a book called Salvation and Sovereignty. Um, and he explores Molinism side by side with Calvinism. And so these issues these issues come up. Um, I, I would push back on some of the things you said, but I'm actually – it escapes from my memory uh, some of the points that, that Dr. Keithley brings up. But but yeah, yeah. definitely interesting questions, and, and uh, it gets complicated really fast. <laughs> yes, it does. So I, what I try and do when I teach people, I want them to understand an issue is, is uh, let's b- break it down. And I'll even say this is awfully simplified. Mm-hmm. And then I'll say, but understand this principle. It represents it accurately in one sense, but not in another. And right. then we have to go in because you and I will have these two-hour conversations like this over the phone. And we understand the shortcuts of theology and, and terminology. We'll go, we, go, we go. But a lot of people who are listening don't. Right. And this, this is the issue is we want people to understand. So I try and break it down and then say, but... There are variables in here. We get, now, once we get the basics down, let's introduce a few variables that can affect how, how the basis. Now, the problem, however, with that is they're going on how I ana- analyze Molinism to be ultimately uh, based in. Mm-hmm. And that, that's one of the problems because I could be wrong about it. Sure. But it, you understand Molinism better than I do. And you've talked a lot about it. You've read a lot about it. It's one of the things you've just kind of hopped on and just really been studying about it. So that's great. But... It's still, for I understand the Molinism, and we had our discussions, God's choice to actualize, okay, folks, let me back up, potential ex- existences and actual existences. God knows an, an infinite number of potential universes he could have created, but there's only one that he actualized. Now, there's even debate about that, because if God knows all things perfectly and has all perfect knowledge, he's only going to actualize one perfect one, which is consistent with his perfect knowledge and, and decrees. 
So there wouldn't be any potentiality outside of that. That's a whole other discussion, but nevertheless. Yeah. Important, though. That, that was an important, that's an important point because that's exactly what I, because a lot of, um, one guy that I was interacting with, we were talking about whether libertarian freedom is actually coherent or not. And so he asked me, oh, well, well, he said that, well, does God have libertarian freedom? Could God have chosen not to, to create? And uh, I said, I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, that. It sounds irreverent to say, you know, God may not be free to not create, but it seems as though if God uh, knew what he would do from all of eternity, how could he possibly? Uh, are you okay? You're, you look a little Sorry. shocked. Is he oh, from okay. next door? He's from over there. Sorry, folks. Okay. That's okay. What's it, he's a big guy. Tell him to come on up. Okay. There's an Airbnb next door. Some people moved in for a week while they're waiting for a house. And I went over and introduced myself. I got talking to them. And I said, come over on Wednesday, what we were talking about, to come over for a Bible study. It might be that guy. He might be coming in. I might have him sit down. And he can listen in. I might put us on speaker and everything else we can see. I don't know. Okay. He's going to find out. Hopefully he doesn't have a gun and you know he's in a gorilla suit. I don't know. There we go. <laughs> well, that would be so horrible. So hold on. Let's see. Sure, sure. It is. I'm looking, waiting. We're seeing. Wait, are, are you there? Hiding a, a complete stranger. Oh yeah, it is him. Yeah, come on in. <laughs> hey, I'm doing okay. I'm on the web. We're having a sophisticated discussion on theology. You want to sit down and listen? I'll put it on so you can hear us if you want. Did you have? What are you coming over for Bible stuff or just what? <laughs> oh, you are. You're taking off. Well, you're gonna be. I can come over next door in about an hour if you want and just say hi and stuff. We, I have a Thursday night thing I do for two hours, and um, so what I do is we talk theology. We're talking about Molinism, counterfactual knowledge, things like this, really stupid, sophisticated stuff that people, they yawn about. <laughs> we Have a seat and listen if you want. I'll put it on speaker so they can do that. Okay, hold on. I'm going to change my speaker so you can listen. Okay, in fact, I'm going to do. I'm reading someone's comment here. It's hilarious. A person wrote, I hear middle knowledge and my brain goes middle earth. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, I all agree. Right, hold on, let me do this. Let's see. And speakers, I'll do. Hold on one sec. Okay, say something. Something. All right, there you go. All right. So, now can you hear me okay? Yeah, you're good. It doesn't sound as good as when I use the headset, right? You're fine. That's what my wife says. Thank you. I like that. That's nice. You're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. I use that line on a lady today at the hospital. She goes, no, that's okay. You're fine. I go, well, thank you. My wife agrees. You know? <laughs> so anyway, um, what are you, Derek? Tony. Tony. Oh, I suck with names. I, I thought this. Sure. So this is Tony next door. And, hey, Tony uh, next door. Yeah. So this is a, so this is a, you don't know about this. This is YouTube. And so every Thursday night from six to eight, I get on and, uh, back to my radio show, I get on here and we have discussions. And so this guy right here, the ugly one, that's right there. You know, see, he's, he's yeah, this, hey, so he waves. And we're discussing some sophisticated Bible stuff. And we're discussing some problems. So where were we? We were at the, okay, so libertarian free will. The problem if, with God, the, if, God, if God has it. Well, God can only act in a manner consistent with his nature. But he's certainly free to do what he wants to do. But his nature is holy, First Peter 1.16. So he can only do that which is holy. He cannot sin. He cannot lie, for example, Titus right. 1.2. So how do we define libertarianism? Here's a problem, another problem I see with Molinism. 
is that the definitions offered are often man-centered. Libertarianism, to me, is a man-centered definition. It's not starting with God as the standard of righteousness. Be perfect for I am, you know, be, be perfect because your holy heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. Or 1 Timothy 1, 16, be holy for I am holy. Well, God is the standard of righteousness. God is the standard of all things and even of free will. And God doesn't have compatibilist free will because compatibilism deals with the issue of man's nature as it relates to God's sovereign choices and predestination over that. So libertarianism is uh, anti-compatibilism, so it doesn't even apply to God. I would just be careful, I guess, when you say that libertarianism is is man-centered, that is an interpretation. I believe it is. You say it starts with man, but – that is not necessarily true. Maybe people you've spoken with start with man, but some Molinists believe it. I mean, we might disagree, but they genuinely believe that it's biblical to say that God is so sovereign that he could have chosen to refrain from creating if he wanted to. Well, my, my, my response to them is to take their right hand and put it in front of their face, look <laughs> to their left and slap themselves upside the head. Because what they're doing, I, I believe, is still assigning a human-based value and they're anthropomorphizing God. Okay. okay. And, because libertarianism deals with the ability of man to be able to act in a manner consistent with his own freedom so that God retains his freedom. That's the, the impetus. This is what Molina started. He wanted to, to harmonize God's sovereignty and man's freedom. And so when you that that to me is the starting point is of equality with God and man and the issue of free will. And you can't have that because God is sovereign over our free will. He moves the heart of the king where he wishes it to go. Proverbs 21 1. He opened Lydia's heart to believe the gospel. Acts 16, 14. This is God's sovereignty is automatically over our will. And plus libertarianism compatibilism deals with human nature, not God's. If we were to throw a monkey wrench in this discussion, it is interesting to see that those who affirm that God has the ability or the freedom rather to uh, refrain from creating many of the people who affirm that and affirm Molinism also have an interesting view of God's simplicity because of the classical view of the simplicity of God, that he's equal to all his attributes. You have no room for the possibility of God doing anything other than what he does. We discussed that in seminary whether or not God could have created the world differently than he did. And I don't believe he could have. Not right. that God is limited or has to answer to something outside of himself and get into the euthyphro dilemma. Right, we, right. we get this thing about, no, God's nature is perfect. And he has freedom within his perfection in a way that we can't even comprehend. It's right. not comprehensible. Like I said, I say this every now and then. One of the best things I learned in seminaries when a professor went up to the board and said, gentlemen, I'm going to teach you one of the most important things you can learn in the seminary. There is a God. You are not him. You can tell Eli that we've talked. But I've, I've listened to your podcast since as far I can predict everything you're going to say. <laughs> well, then you also know that I'm that humble about all of it, too. Right. And you wouldn't challenge the fact that I know what you're going to say because you believe in the spiritual gifts. <laughs> so, That's right. I'm sorry. You believe in the charismatic gifts too. Um, I'm 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 more lean toward that side. I have some friends who are trying to who are trying to get me to become a cessationist. Uh, so we're interacting a little bit, and I'm doing doing some homework so I can continue. Well, in that. We can talk about that at the top of the hour. Take a break here for five. I'll talk to Tony here, nice guy, and then we can talk about the charismatic gifts continuationism because the biblical position is they're still around. And I can defend it. I can do a good job defending it if you guys want. If, well, we'll see what the listeners want. And maybe we can do okay. it. enjoying right. our conversation. Because maybe, right. maybe there's, they don't get it. Maybe they're going, uh, 
they're too smart for me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, speaking of that, I do have to tip my hat off to my Molinist friends. I do greatly appreciate my discussions with them because they definitely keep me on my toes and make me think about, you know, really deep issues. I've, I have had only respectful discussions with, with Molinist. And I think, um, yeah, I think the problem is these kinds of discussions can get so heated that you really never get anywhere. So I just, I, I just want to let people know I appreciate my Molinist friends. They do keep me on my toes. They do. But what they, when I talk to Molinists who are really knowledgeable and articulate, sure. it only strengthens my understanding of Reformed theology, Calvinism, and uh, it demonstrates to me that what I, it was my my basic understanding of Molinism is, and this is like here's another example when I say this, it's way too base, but it's the premise by which I think ultimately is it, it resides in is human centeredness, God's reactive work to his logically prior knowledge that he has in potential universes. And this is why he actualized the one we're in now, because of what he saw we would do in whatever circumstance, and that's what he chose. I, that, by definition, is reactionary. Okay. And that's, and now, what a Molinist should do is say, and what's wrong with that? That's what he should say, and what's wrong with that? And then we get into the issue of God's aseity and non-contingency. Okay. Yeah. No. Interesting stuff, man. I, I know uh, Dr. William responded to that. Yeah. It's way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, Put him on the spot. No, we used to have talks like this in the coffee shop back in uh, San Diego, in La Mesa. La Mesa? Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, You know, there's big, they had Christian coffee shops, and that's where we yeah, talk mostly that. Calvinism. Yeah, I'm so, a Calvinist. Calvinist, 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 <laughs> Calvinist. Yeah, yeah, we uh, and Armenianism and yeah, yeah the whole. See, thing. he knows. See, <laughs> we have an Airbnb next door, and, and this big U-Haul drives up, and in all the years it's been there, I've never seen a U-Haul. So I thought, what is going on? Did the guy sell the house? Because I know the guy who owns it, and so I went over there and set my nose in somebody else's business and introduced myself. But I was curious, particularly since we'd had publicly some stuff happen and some other stuff, and the atheists are going, yeah. But uh, anyway, do you want to hang? Do you want to hang? Listen, hang? Yeah, it's, hang? it's it's interesting, and uh, yeah, it's it's unfortunately though, hopefully, it doesn't get divisive. Oh no, no, yeah, no, no. Sometimes that, that, that has happened, you know. Yeah, no, we we have good. Fact, the group of people that we talk about this, we can disagree really strongly, but we can also, in the meantime, Agree insult each other, and we're laughing about it yeah. because we know. That's why, like Eli here. He should be a, a continuationist like me in the same level as I am. Obviously, it's, oh, no, we've got traditional Catholic in. <laughs> and the division starts now. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah it, you don't know, you know about Catholicism. People don't know. I teach on it a lot. You haven't seen my website, have you? No, if you could write it down. For Here, me, I'll show it to you. have to check it out. Maybe I'll leave you a... Update. <laughs> yeah, see, see, this is uh, that's my website right there, and um, C- yeah, c a r m dot o r g, and um, so I got all kinds of stuff on it. <laughs> working on it for years and years, and uh, I've been we've been getting rid of pack, getting rid of books, you know. So you know, we got to move. But anyway, okay. So I got a question. Okay, let's ask the people in the chat room. We got forty-seven people watching. Do you guys want to have Eli and I continue on this discussion of Molinism, counterfactuals, logical priority, 
or would you like to hear us discuss the continuation of the charismatic gifts or the evils of Roman Catholicism or whatever it is, or you guys got some topic. All of the above. All of <laughs> Thanks, that helps. I just don't want to listen to traditional Catholic uh, read off the Aikens material and the Diamond Brothers material. That's been getting kind of tiresome. Yeah, he, he has a you know. And we've gone through, we've spent so much time talking to him. I don't want to talk about that right now. Maybe so, the look, gifts. Not, okay, we got a vote book. for Molinism, a vote for art for Catholicism, and a vote for continuationism. I'll vote for gifts, the gifts. That would the gifts? be great. Yeah. Want me to give you my reasons why the gifts are still around? I believe that they are, but sure. Unless the Bible's changed. Uh, see, he said it. Unless the Bible's changed. Right? I'm with him. <laughs> I mean, we can argue with each other's ideas and opinions, but the Bible, that's something different. I don't know about you guys, but I'm sola scriptura. And that's for the traditionalist in there. What does that mean? It means that the scripture alone has that place of final authority. And that's what I believe. Amen. That's right. Now, now Matt, now, Matt, a common, a common uh, objection against con, um, continuationism is that it uh, challenges the, the doctrine of sola scriptura and the sufficiency of scripture. What say you? <laughs> yes. Okay, you know why it doesn't? Because in 1 Corinthians 14, they're speaking in tongues, their interpretation of tongues, there's word of knowledge, there's word of wisdom, there's prophecies that occur, and they were not canonized. So there is a level of revelation that comes from God through the Holy Spirit that manifests through the church that is not meant to be canonized. Those people who say it challenges a canon apparently don't have 1 Corinthians 14 in their Bible, and they don't read it. Or if they do read it, they go, and then we shall come to and then they go like that, because they just say more what it says. Okay. Eagerly desire the gift. Yeah, that's right. Eagerly desire the, the, the charismata. Now, let's just jump right in. Look, the word there's there's uh, the word for charismatic comes from the Greek charismata. Charismata, yeah. Now, there are charismatic gifts. I'm going to show you guys something. This is really important. How many believe, you can type it in, how many believe the charismatic gifts have ceased? Okay, with the closing of the canon or whatever it is. All right. They'll say the charismatic gifts. I'll seen. put I'll put my question. I'll put a question mark since I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> I lean towards your position, but I, I I I hear some interesting arguments on the other side. Well, oh, I would love to hear the irrational, interesting arguments too. <laughs> so, when I did my debate in with uh, uh, what's his name in uh, Houston on the charismatic gifts, uh, Matt is a shot out of a cannon. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You did have a discussion um, with J.D. Hall a while back. We had, yeah, but I kept it low level with him. Okay. And there were some areas he could not answer. And there's some things. He's got to twist stuff. But nevertheless, um, uh, you know, if, if he and I want to do a public debate, real debate on it, I'd be glad to. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I mean, a serious go at it debate. But um, uh, so here's the thing. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, charismata. The free gift of God, eternal life. Let me ask you, have all the charismatic gifts ceased? Well, if the if that's described as a charismata and it still occurs today, then it can't. Yeah, and literally what it says is uh, deta charisma. But the gift, the charisma, the gift 
of God. The word free uh, isn't really there. It just says give, charisma. Now, yeah. now here's the question, because I, I don't have a strong Greek background. Um, is there another Greek word for gift that yes. doesn't use charismata? Uh, doron. Okay, and what's what's the difference between now, charismata and doron? It's been a long time. Um, doron is a Greek word. It's used in various terms of gifts. But the, the, what I like to do is show that, and it's used in different ways. And you can also go to, I think it's, uh, let me get my Bible, get Bible program down to this monitor down here. Okay. Hold on. I think it's in um, 1 Corinthians 12 or 14. I think it's 14. Uh, and also pneumaticas, uh, spirituals. Okay. okay. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. That's Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, right? One. All right. And in verse 14, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, um, pursue earnestly the spiritual gifts, but it's pneumatica again. And it would, you know, from the pneuma, the spirit, they come from the Holy Spirit because that's where they're gifted out of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know this, but there are different kinds of gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 14. And there are charismatic gifts and there are non-charismatic gifts. Okay. Non-charismatic gifts would be such things as helps, administrations. Now, what's the Greek word there when referring to those kinds of gifts? I think it's uh, pneumatica. Let me let me see. Okay. I'm only asking because when you say when you refer to eternal life as a charismatic gift, I wonder if someone can make the argument that the context there is not the gifts that's referenced in those other portions of scripture where talk about you know speaking in tongues and prophecy. And I wonder if one is using that word in a different context and just equating them with one another. Right, and you always have to ch uh, check that. Uh, absolutely. Um, but the word, let's see, the word, there's helps. I forgot. It's been a long time that I've taught, discussed this. But uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And the word helps there is antilimpsis. Uh, antilimpsis. Okay. Antilimpsis. And it just means helps. But it's listed, and it will, along with administrations, okay, mm -hmm. and kubernetes. Uh, oh boy, kubernetes is in the Greek word here. There's different, okay. things, but it's a gift to the church. Yeah. People have have the ability to do helps, just to help people and administer. We have people coming over here to help us because of our, my wife's situation and stuff like that. Um, so there are uh, people who have the gifts of of. Uh, Let's see, where's the word helps? Here we go. Uh, healings, helps, administrations. Uh, well, help and administration are not a charismatic gift because anybody can do them. Technically speaking, even unbelievers can be helpful. Even unbelievers can, you know, be administrators of various things and helpful. But there are only charismatic gifts. Those are the ones from the Holy Spirit. Okay. It is emphasized as he indwells the, the believer and actualizes those things that he's capable of working in and does work in people. Sure. That, those are for the gifts of the church. Those things are uh, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, and things like that. So the, okay. Christ, the Christian church exemplified those. Now, let me show you something. 1 Corinthians 1.7. This is going to tie into 1 Corinthians 13, but 1 Corinthians 1 7, so that you're not lacking any gift. And the word is charisma. Now, what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 1 7, let me read the whole thing to get the context. 
Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, is Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, and everybody get the context, okay? I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as a testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any charisma, awaiting eagerly the revelation, the apocalypsis of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul does. He equates not lacking any charismatic gifts with the return of Christ. That's what it does right there. What people will do is they'll say to me, well, man, what he's talking about there is only to the Corinthians. He's not talking to the whole church. Mm -hmm. But in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to everyone everywhere who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus. That's a universal admonition, and it's the entire church. So that doesn't work. And plus... Two verses later, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful through whom you're called into fellowship with the Son, Christ Jesus. The fe- that's, that's us today. So anybody who would say that verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 is for, the, for um, the universal church, but verse 7 is only for the Corinthian church, and 8 and 9 is not for universal, that kind of, of exegetical uh, gymnastics just doesn't work. But notice what he does here. You're not to lack any charisma while you're waiting for the apocalypsis of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what Paul does. Well, that's the problem. Yeah, we're still we're, we're still waiting, so the gifts are still here. Now, check this out. Go to First Corinthians thirteen. If I speak with tongues, you know, men of angels, but do not have love, it goes on. The gift of prophecy, etc. Verse four: Love is patient. Love is kind. We know all this stuff. Love does not uh, rejoice in unrighteousness. Bears all things. Now, verse eight: Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy. They'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it'll be done away. For we all know in part and we prophesy in part. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, some people say that what the perfect is is the completion of the canon. I don't believe well, that. Well, even if they believe that, that's a weak because it's not. you don't get that from the text. You don't get it from the that's text. That's just an inference, yeah. Right. But because they will presuppose that any charismatic gift must be in, in, uh, canonized, which 1 Corinthians 14 proves is not true. Okay. Then they will assume that the word perfect, which is telos in the Greek, complete, perfect, mature. Telos in the Greek means the completion of the canon. And then, then the partial will be done away with the charismatic gifts or the partial. But that doesn't work because it, they can say that, but does the context necessitate it? Because check this out. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, thought as a child, reasoned like a child. When I did, uh, became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in, in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So then, what's the antecedent of then? What the antecedent of then is, is when the perfect comes. So it, do we say then that when the Bible is completed, that's when we see face to face? No. In fact, I've done a, a search on the phrase face-to-face in the Bible, and every single occurrence it deals with is personal encounter. Hmm. So for now, we've seen a mirror, a mirror dimly, but then when the perfect comes, face-to-face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. That's a cryptic statement hmm. that I have been fully known, but I know what it means. 
And the reason I know what it means is because I've done a search on how God uses the word no, gnosko in the Greek, K-N-O-W, as it relates to us. So in John 10, 5, uh, excuse me, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. Right. And they follow me. Galatians 4, 8, 9. When you did not know God, you served by nature those which are not gods. But now that you've come to know God or rather are known by God, now you've come to serve the true and living God. You go to mm-hmm. Matthew 7, 22 and 23, where Jesus says, uh, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles in your name? And, he'll say, and he said, and I will say to them, I never knew you. Get away from me. Right. You who work in iniquity. So when God says, I know you, it means you're saved. When he says, I don't know you, it means you're not saved. Right. The only place where I know you is ref- in reference to an unbeliever. I forgot the verse. Is when Jesus says to the Pharisees, I know you, you're your father, the devil. Right. And he immediately qualifies it. So it's not just the phrase, I know you, but it's, I know you, you are. He's saying, I know who you are, your essence. Right. And he's saying that they're demonic. So what we see here is that the perfect cannot be simply the canon. But when Christ returns, which is 1 Corinthians 1, 7, waiting for the apocalypsis of Jesus, when the perfect comes, uh, he says, for now we've seen him uh, mere dimly, then face to face. When Jesus comes back, we'll be caught up to meet him. First, uh, First Thessalonians 4, verse 16, chapter 5, verse 2. Well, that's a rapture, okay? We now we see mere dimly, then face to face. That's a personal encounter. Now I know in part, but then when the perfect comes, um, I'll know fully just as I have been fully known. The phraseology is one of salvation. He's mm-hmm. not talking about the completion of the canon because if it were, do we, is, are we fully known by God with the completion of the canon? Yeah. Of course not. Are we see face to face when the canon is completed? Of course not. I have a question here. So I was I was speaking to a, a retired Presbyterian pastor, and we were talking about this issue. Very well known guy, actually. He actually debated James White on the issue of infant baptism versus believer baptism. So he's. I'm sorry. How do you do? Did you do well? Oh, now I'm biased. I'm a huge fan of Doctor White, but I I have to say, his name is Will. I don't Pastor Will Shishko. I have to say he did very well against uh, against James White. I, I think he might have pulled ahead. I think he might have pulled ahead in the debate. Okay. Well, but you know I'm not sure. Huh? I hold to that position. I hold. Yes. To yeah, I know. You're you're, you're a <laughs> We can talk about that another time, too. Right, right, right. I have a good um, argument for it. But but, but when we were talking about the charismatic gifts, um, I posed the question, are the gifts for today? And he 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 said that. And this is an interesting way to come about it. He said that that's the wrong question to ask. Not not whether if, if it's for today, he says, the better question to approach this whole issue is the question of what is the purpose of the gift so that when you explore the purpose of the gift, then hopefully, according to his view, you will see that it's no longer for today. And so he said starting there is a more helpful way of approaching to come to that conclusion. So if I were to ask you the question from his perspective, what is the purpose of the gift? And could you answer that question also leading into why also you think it's for today? Well, we would have to go to this thing called the Bible. The Bible. <laughs> Very yeah. good. Okay, good. Okay. And what we would do is go to 1 Corinthians 14. Mm-hmm. And what we see in 1 Corinthians 14, it's been a long time since I've debated this, so I don't have it all memorized, okay? You've sure. got to bear with me while I try and find the... Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 verse what? Well, I don't know yet. Okay. Because it talks about... Okay, I had to get myself set up. Uh, I wish you all spoke in tongues. 
Okay, well, let me back up. We'll just go through it in an extra G. What uh, verse are you in? 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 2. Uh, okay. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Now, we could look at that and say speaking in tongues is speaking to God, and there's mysteries being spoken, and we could mm -hmm. discuss what's what's the purpose of that. Edification of the individual, obviously, not the edification of God. Do we still need that today? Of course we do. Mm -hmm. I don't speak in tongues, but, you know. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and, and exhortation and, con and uh, consolation. So one who prophesies speaks for edification and exhortation. Do we need that today? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Sure. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Do we still need the edification of the church today? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. But now Paul is saying he wants the whole church and people to prophesy. Why? Edification and exhortation. Do we need that today? Oh, yes, we do. Especially since that stupid guy uh, who's the pastor of the Hillsong Church up in uh, uh, New York City, uh, Carl Lentz, yes. who was on The View, said that about abortion when he said, well, you know, everybody's got to act according to their own convictions. I did it. I'm going to write an article on it. I, I read that. I, I transcribed sure. it. No, I, I know what you're referring to. Yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, so look at this, uh, but even more that you would prophesy and greater is one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive ed edifying. Do we need that today? Sure. Yes. I can go on and on with this chapter doing the same thing. So Do now, so now what, are, what if someone says, all right, fine. So we need, we need edification. We need all these things, but what can you tell me that is not now available to me in scripture? So what's the use of Even that element since, since we do? I'm not saying that that verse that was mentioned before is talking about when the canon is closed, then these things will cease. But let's assume if someone was were, were thinking along those lines, we have the Bible, we have the fullness of the gospel. If you're going to encourage me or give me a word or exhort, exhort me, what can you say that's not already there in Scripture? Well, all kinds of stuff. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot. <laughs> so... And, and by the way, I'm asking because I I, I want to see where you're coming from. I'm not necessarily saying I, okay. I hold to that view at all, but go ahead. What Sola Scriptura means is that there's nothing outside of the Scripture we don't look at. It means the Scriptures are the final authority in everything we examine, whether history, whether church fathers, whether councils, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Word of knowledge, word of wisdom, word of everything. So um, we have, uh, for example, people having visions and dreams of Jesus in the Middle East, in Muslim countries, and they're converting by the thousands. They don't even have the Bible. In some countries, it's illegal to have a Bible. They can be killed for it or exiled or whatever it is. In the Holy Spirit, he, he did examples in the Bible where he warned people and stuff. That's That falls under it, I believe, as well. Yeah, that, that'd, be under, now. that'd be under word of knowledge or word of wisdom, right. but exhort, exhortation. So we see in the Middle East that this is happening right now to people who don't even have the word of God. There's a book you can get called Bruchko, B-R-U-C-H-K-O. And it's a guy by a guy named Bruce Wilson. And it's an account of him going down to South America to the Motoloni tribe. And in South America, I'm skipping all kinds of stuff. He was a missionary. Sure. And uh, he ended up learning the language of a certain tribe. And there was a prophecy in the tribe that there'll be a white-haired man, he had blonde hair, who would come to them with the word of God written on banana leaves. They didn't have scripture, but they had a prophecy that was somehow in their culture. And there's lots of things like this throughout the world. I myself once very distinctly remember, and 
Charlie, I don't know, it wasn't Charlie was there on this one. It was, um, it was Charlie's a friend of mine I've known for like 40 years. Uh, it was Dave Kimball, and Dave's not here. So I'm sitting at the Swap Meet Ministry back in Southern California, uh, just a half a mile from the Crystal Cathedral, Costa 22 Freeway, at the Santa Ana um, drive-in before they tore it down. And I had this Swap Meet Ministry. And I remember a guy came up to me, and he was talking to me. We, we had a, a booth. We had tables. We had rocks with rocks on them and uh, for tracks and evangelism. We did this every Saturday for two and a half years. And um, this guy comes up. He had dark hair, slender guy, about 20, mid-20s, early 20s, light, I remember, light frame. I remember this guy. And we're talking, and he's telling me why he did not believe in the word and did not believe Christ and thus. And he's giving me some answers, and I'm asking him some questions. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there was this presence. And I knew, it was, I, I don't have to describe it, just, oh, it was this. Ooh, and I remember looking at him, and I knew exactly what his problem was. Mm. And I spoke to him with such authority and truth. I said, this is, and I don't remember the exact thing I said, but it was basically, you know that God has spoken to you about, and I listed like two or three things out. He's mm -hmm. spoken to you about them in your heart, in your mind, you know. And what's happened is you have re re refused to believe because you want such and such and such and such. I mean, it was specific. Yeah. And this went on for like 30 seconds. And then all of a sudden, this presence left. And that guy, literally, he was looking at me like someone had just performed the greatest magic trick in the world. <laughs> his, his mouth was open, his eyes were bugged out, and he actually stumbled backwards. And he just, he couldn't believe what he was hearing, and he walked off. Now, yeah. that's a proof of anything? No. But you know, my friend Dave, who I still know, you know what he told me? He was sitting there. And he saw this. We were, he was here just a few months ago. We got talking about it. And he said, Matt, I remember that. He said, right when this started with you, I saw around you a presence that looked like heat, heat waves. Mm. And it was shimmering around you as you spoke, and it left when you stopped. Mm. I went, really? Now, okay, that wasn't in Scripture, but it didn't contradict Scripture. Yeah, now that's the point because I know I know a lot of people who tend to be uh, very strict. Well, wait a minute. Now you're basing things on your experience. Uh-uh. What did um, I do? I want my experience last. That, that's right. And, and we always analyze it in light of, of Scripture. Oh, what I loved about your, your discussion with uh, J.D. Hall is that you pointed out that he has no category. For uh, in a, he has no category for understanding your experience. In other words, right? He couldn't uh, actually right. experience. You believe the Bible. You had an experience. You don't see the experience contradict Scripture. Now, if he just asserts, well, these this, that didn't actually happen. It wasn't really what you thought it was. What do you do with the experience? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And that wasn't on this experience, but it was on that experience where I prophesied over that girl. That's right. That's right. And that's with right. details and time right. references, and it all came to pass. Right. And that stumped him because you know if I it was a hearsay, what's he going to do? But no, this is it. This is me. This is I, this happened. I remember it clearly. This is her name. This, right. this is right. where it was. I could take it to the place where it was. I mean, it happened in real time. And he right. stumbled at that point because his worldview didn't allow it to occur. Right. Well, he wants to be consistent in what he affirms, but he now has to, he has the problem of now disbelieving what you say. Even knowing that you are a reliable source, you know, it's not, you're not like an unbeliever trying to trick. I mean, you're saying like, hey, I'm, I'm a rational guy. I, you know, I'm not overly emotional. This is what happened. 
and he has no categories for it. He can't even say you're you're lying because he doesn't want to say that. Right, <laughs> but he can't. he can't affirm the validity of what you're saying because he's already committed to a particular understanding of of the gifts. There you go. Yeah. Well, it reminds me, back in seminary, I was sitting there talking to a guy, and I could tell you, it was one of those another moments where I go, what? And I, I could tell you, I could take you to the door. I was standing in a particular room, and I told him about the experience I had where when my buddy, a, uh, a different Dave, whom I've known even longer, another Dave, uh, we had a seance before I was a Christian in my room, and a, a blue <laughs> ball of, yeah. A blue ball of light materialized and turned into a, a, the figure of a man that then dissolved and a yellow cross materialized in the room and moved across. Now, I saw it. I still remember saying this. My friend Dave, we're still friends. I got my cell. He's on my cell. I could call him up. You know, we talked about it. He goes, yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. I told my friend this, and he, he looked at me in seminary, and he's a cessationist, a strict cessationist. He said, I believe he was a strict cessationist. He said, that never happened. You never saw it. And he turned around and walked off. <laughs> and I was dumbfounded because it was obvious that his presuppositions were guarding everything so much so he wasn't open to anything. Now, yeah. I have a high view of Scripture. You know, I have an extremely high view of Scripture. But the Scriptures teach in 1 Corinthians 14 that tongues and prophecy and interpretations which came from the Spirit of God doesn't mean that to be canonized. That's proof. So it doesn't threaten the canon. If it did, then why aren't those things canonized? They didn't need to be. So that argument just falls flat on its face. And do the, are the gifts still needed for today? Yeah, just go through First Corinthians 14 and you'll now see I hear, I hear people say, well, it, okay, they weren't canonized, but whatever those utterances were, would they have held the equal authority with Scripture since their source is God? So you have no. God – say again? No, because okay. only the Scripture is ordained by God for the purpose of being Scripture. Yes, but, but the, the authority, the authority level would still be the same, would it not? Oh, since it's still God speaking, the scriptures are universally applied. A specific thing, like when I prophesied to Tony, and I said, "And you know, you're not going on your mission. You're going to stay. What's going to happen in five months? You're going to meet a guy. He's going to become your spiritual mentor. In eighteen months, you two are going to have a special bond, and you're going to go do mission work together." Yeah. Now that's not for the church; it's for him. And yeah, her, but it's but for him. But for him, her. is it, or sorry, her, is it as equally authoritative as scripture? Since no. if what, okay, so that, that's the, that's the, uh, good, I'm glad you said that because that's the issue that I, I have difficulty understanding that if the Bible is the word of God because it's inspired by God and a prophetic utterance or a word of knowledge is given to you by God, you have God speaking in both. And I don't see how there are different degrees of authority <laughs> when both of those things are functioning. If they're equal in authority, then both need to be inscripturated because the, the idea is that scripture is that final authority. If they're going to have equal authority then of scripture, then they need to be inscripturated by the definition of them being equal in authority. But the fact is, if you read 1 Corinthians 14, the tongues and the prophecy need to be judged by the elders. What are the elders going to judge it by? Well, church comes together and judge it, but by scripture. So all things must be judged by what God has ordained is the canon of scripture, which is elders. Yeah as self-attestation as being true. So anything that I would prophesy or have a word of knowledge must be con examined against the word of God. Okay. So, don't have equal authority. so I don't see it logically following from the idea that if they're equal in authority, that therefore they both have to be inscripturated. I don't see how that logically follows. If, if they're equal in inspiration and so that's what I'm saying from their perspective, if they're going to argue 
that, well, you prophesied, so why is it equal to Scripture? They're putting it on equal level of Scripture. If that's the case, if they're saying it's equal, then I'm going to ask them, then should it be inscripturated? Because that's what they tell me. Well, they should be inscripturated. Well, well, I'm saying, I'm saying that it's equal in authority, but it may not be equal in its application to everyone else. Exactly. Well, what's the, authority, the what's the intention of the New Testament, for example? Say, say again? What's God's intention in a broad sense? What's God's intention with the New Testament? Well, and the New Testament gives us information of the gospel and the new covenant and how it applies to every believer and and, uh, and unbeliever, too, I suppose, what, what what God has to say towards them as well. Right, but it's to the believers. It's to the church. Right, the church right, of, right, the right. Church right. So if I were to stand up someplace at a conference, let's say I was, I asked, I was asked to speak at a conference. Okay. A thousand people there. And all of a sudden, right, and I say, thus saith the Lord. He has for the church, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, they'd usher me out the back door so I don't get stoned. But if I'm sitting there talking to an individual and sure. say, this is what God is, has for you, that's not the same thing. The scriptures are for the church corpus, um, political corpus. At yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I know what you're saying. And I, that's a good, I think that's an important point because the New Testament is for the church. A specific word is for an individual. Or and I'm not, individual, I'm not, yeah. Right. I'm not differentiating. I, I mean, I understand that differentiation that one's for the church, one's specifically for a, a person. But it seems as though if they both come from God, the binding authority is equal in the sense that while the specific word for the individual is not for everyone, it's still authoritative for the person that you're giving it to since it's coming from God. That's what I'm saying. But no one knows if it's coming from God. If I were to prophesize, I did with that, that girl, Tony, Mm -hmm. right. If I were to prophesy, she doesn't know what I'm saying is, is from God. In fact, I remember after I was done, it was the same kind of a thing happened. And then it's gone. And I remember going, what the heck was that? How did I know that? Right. And so I'm not speaking as an apostle because I'm not. You know, Paul said, I'm telling what I'm telling you is, is the word of God. You know, okay, I'm not doing that. And the people I know in the charismatic circles, they don't do that. They do not. Some do and mistakenly, but they're not supposed to. But they sure. don't put their their word equal to the to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. The purpose of God's revelation to us. We have, you know, we have general revelation, the son, the, the created order, the anthropic principle. We understand all this stuff. We understand there's a revelation of God that is given to us at very varying le- levels. And that's even to the unbeliever, so that they're without excuse, Romans 1, 18 through 31. We know they're without excuse because the evidence of God is made in creation. That's a form of revelation. But we right. call it general revelation, not special revelation. And for those who don't know, special revelation is a scripture. And the Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles given to us. has self-authenticating power. It's the voice of God. We recognize it, and it's ordained by God very specifically. And it's, it's inspired. But yet, within that same word in 1 Corinthians 14, we will see the movement of the Holy Spirit in the church, and yet it's not inscripturated, nor is it said to be of of authoritative level equal to Scripture. In fact, it's to be judged. The only way to judge it is by the Scriptures themselves. And so when we see this, look at this. It says this here. Um, This is verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let others pass judgment. 
But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first must also keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that you all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Now, wait a minute. <clears throat> if I were to be at a, a, a debate and I were to rephrase this into my own terminology and say it, they would complain about that. Mm. Because as I often do, I'll quote scripture. They don't know I'm quoting scripture. And then they say, no, I don't agree with that. Eh? Well, this they might know because it's so Right. sounding. But the point is that it says if you're going to prophesy, people need to pass judgment. But if it's prophesying, it's coming from God. Then why are men judging God's words now? Because there's a different level of revelation that's proven to exist in 1 Corinthians 14 and a revelation with its intent. So if God, if it was that, I don't know how to explain it, but with Tony, when I prophesied, which is the only time it's happened like that in my entire life in such detail. If that was for God to do, uh, that's his desire to do that through me for her, whatever reason, I don't know. Maybe for something later on, we've since lost contact. Maybe it was something that she needed. I don't know. But it was not intended to be for the church at large. And so it's a different level. And people don't like that. They they kind of assume that there's different that it's all the same level of authority from God. Not true. Because we see that proven in First Corinthians 14. So those objections don't carry any weight. They don't they don't merit any challenge to the issue of continuationism. And besides, yeah. Eli, First Corinthians 1 7, you're not to lack any charisma while we're waiting for the apocalypsis of Jesus. Right. So are we lacking any charismatic gift? Oh, all well, if that if that interpretation is correct, then then no. We shouldn't lack any. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're doubting my no, ability. I'm, I'm, I mean, just grant, I'm just granting so, a little more validity to the fact that there these are interpretive issues as well and if uh <laughs> hey listen 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 i lean towards that perspective i grew up in a charismatic church um, now now you speak spanish too that's part of tongues too <laughs> well actually that surprise surprise i don't speak spanish actually i'm i'm uh, you understand it better than you speak it. Is that what it is? I yeah, speak I speak Spanglish. Spanglish, <laughs> that's right. So let's look at First Corinthians one seven. You tell me what it means. And no, no, hey, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I'm just trying to. Th- I mean, way I think, I, I think of objections that might come up when when you make a statement argument stuff like that. So I I agree with you. It's just it's well, interesting. James White and I talked about this verse once. And how'd that go? <laughs> um. It didn't go that well. Uh, I don't know if he remembers it, but I do. But um, uh, he, he he explained it, and I don't remember what he said. But he explained it in such a way that I, I just went, what? I, you know, maybe his knowledge is so much greater than mine that I wasn't able to comprehend it. Uh, <laughs> but I just said, well, I, 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 I you know, and, and we, didn't, we didn't agree. All right. Right. So, but I mean, it, right there, um, that you're not lacking any gift, any charisma. Now, if it's only to, to the Corinthians, then we got problems for everything else in the in that right. that epistle. But if it is that we're not to lack, uh, so that you are not lacking any charisma, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did when you spoke with Doctor White, did you guys mention that particular passage? Yes, that's a specific per- passage, and I'll give you more details in private sometime. Sure, sure, yeah. That must have been interesting. I, my, my first time I met Dr. White was uh, I clumsily dropped a pile of books that I, that I brought to get signed because he came over to Long Island and he stopped his talk and 
It was like I spent many hours writing those books. I was even embarrassed. My, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's my first time I ever met Dr. White. I mean, it asked me to sign my books when, when we met. Listen, I don't know, man. Dr. White's Dr. White. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, but Mr. Slick is Mr. Slick. I'm sorry. You know what it is? I don't talk to Doctor. I've I've talked to to uh, what's the guy that helps him out? I don't well, remember. Right. With him, but not with me. That's all right. I understand. It. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. Yeah. That's because you have good judgment. That's hey, right. I've listened to more of your stuff than I have Doctor White, so you should you should feel flattered. I value <laughs> your perspective. All right, all right. Well, anyway, uh, but First Corinthians one seven to me is a killer verse, and First Corinthians thirteen, the perfect. When you look at the antecedent of, of then face to face and then mm-hmm. we know he's fully known, I don't see that it is any way being anything that's related to the eschaton, or excuse me, to the completion of the canon, but it has to be the eschaton. For those who don't know, that's the return of Christ. Right, right, so, right. And it's yeah. something right here, the same thing in First Corinthians 1 7, that you not lack any charisma while you're waiting for the return of Christ. Do you have a little revelation? Real quick, uh, Matt, who's the guy you debated, the formal debate on this topic? Because I want to take a look at that. I don't oh, think I've ever seen it. I can't remember. Sam, Sam Aldrin? Sam Aldrin? Yeah, I believe it was Sam Aldrin. All right, yeah, someone just posted in the, in the thing here. Okay, I'm, I'm definitely going to check that out. Hey, hey, why don't we, um, if it's okay, why don't we switch gears and talk a little bit apologetics, man? Let's do it. Go for it. What do you got? Well, it's, called, it's called Apologetics Live. I don't know if people are interested in, I mean, this is fascinating stuff. I can talk about stuff all night, but. Well, then what do you got, man? What do you yeah. got, uh, well, what, 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 do you, what is an interesting, what is the most fascinating, uh, topic to study when you're studying the opposing sides that are out there? Evolution. <laughs> he says evolution for, um, evolution is easy to beat because all you got to do is go to the information structures. If you study information, uh, theory and what information is and how it's uh, encoded in biological structures, and then you apply mathematics to it, you can realize that it's impossible for life to form by spontaneously. And that's why there could be no life anywhere in the entire universe. It's, it's, it exceeds the universal probability bound in its mathematical improbability issue. That's interesting. I right. love discussing. And that doesn't stop them, though. Well, it it doesn't stop them because I would actually push back and say that the most important thing is not to go to the facts themselves, but to the intellectual world worldview framework with which we interpret. You know what? See, you see, this is interesting because when I listen to apologists, like well-known apologists, and they explain why they're Christians, the answer usually is because of the evidence. And so sometimes we answer these questions of evolution, things like that, and we appeal to facts and things like that. That's not why we're Christian. No, I think, I think no. the very important thing when we're answering the question why we're Christian, we need to give an answer that's consistent with the scriptures where it says that that his spirit bears witness to our spirit. It's a miracle of God that makes us believers. And then, of course, we have the benefit of appealing also to a worldview that can make sense out of the data of our experience. But I think a lot of people go the backward, backwards route and go straight to the facts. And that's why people talk past each other, I think. Well, you and I completely agree. It's a presuppositional issue. Right. Absolutely. I think everything's a presuppositional issue. I would presuppose that to be true. And you would be presupposing that I'd be presupposing that I presuppose you're correct. <laughs> I, that's correct, because I presuppose it also. That's right. <laughs> so, for those who don't know, presuppositionalism is, folks, the idea of, in, in a base form, you presuppose the Trinitarian God's existence and the inspiration of Scripture, and then work from that premise, and everything falls in place. Is that a priori? If, yeah, it's a priori. Yep. And um, if you were to 
if you were to presuppose, for example, the opposite worldview, a no-God worldview, then you cannot account for the issues in the three main categories of philosophy, epistemology, our theory of knowledge. Um, let's just get into the metaphysics and the essence of the nature of the universe and how we came about. You can't do that. And rationality. Right. And so they can't deal with these things. Right. And I think from, from a methodological standpoint, if people are wondering, hey, what's the difference between, say, a presuppositional method and a non-presuppositional method, the issue is that a presuppositionalist reasons from God, whereas classical, the classical approach, the traditional approach is reason, reason to God. So the one grants the ability of human reason independent of divine revelation, and the other one starts with God's revelation and says if you don't start on that foundation, you can't have all those other things that are essential to a coherent worldview. Right. And the former is basically humanism, which is elevating man's ability in his cognitive sense to be able to judge the truth about God's existence. Yes. And that's never something that God allows for or, or supports in Scripture. He never defends himself he never, as the true and living being. And he never defends the, the uh, issue of how you know something is true. He just assumes his own position, and then we operate, operate from that. And I've done this with atheists so many times. And when I've done this, they, one guy actually said to me, well, sure, it's convenient for you when you do that, isn't it? He said it mockingly, and I said, "Yep, yes." <laughs> That's what, one of my one of my favorite apologetic responses, and I've learned this from you. And it is the most powerful response when someone makes an assertion. I usually respond with, "So." <laughs> That's, I'm I'm joking, and I'm not joking. People have like, "What do you mean, so?" I'm like, "So," even if I grant what you're saying, it doesn't. You know, the, the your conclusion doesn't follow. It's been a funny response, but quite useful. Well, yeah, for those who don't know, when I say that, um, it's not, I, I don't intend to stop there. Right, what I'm right. doing is, is getting them, you know, just, you know, I think, well, so what? Like a, a, an atheist might say, well, um, slavery is wrong in the Bible because uh, society said so. And I go, so? And I want him to start unpacking his position. And it's, right. it's fun to go, well, you know, if you do it like this with a raised eyebrow and a kind of a shirk and you kind of just go, so <laughs> Not like your economic arguments for that one. The what? For slavery. It's uneconomical. Non-economical? Well, there's different arguments. Yeah. But, but, I, I, it's, but yeah. It, we wouldn't have we the get society a, we have now if we still continued in slavery. I mean, they've done studies on it. Oh, yeah. yeah there'd be, well, we're talking presuppositionally about the issues, though, what they'll do. But... Um, and that's what we do, you know. So I'll I'll, I'll talk to the atheists, and uh, what I want them to do it's like when I was on my radio show, and a well-known atheist woman got on once. She'd been on national TV, and um, blah blah blah. She's on my show, and she said all babies are born atheists. Right. Now here's the principle of argumentation: it's it's not as the, the so what category, it's the how do you know category. Right. They made an assertion, and I just said, how do you know? So these uber simple, ultra, you know, very simple statements. So why is that wrong? How do you know? These kinds of questions are what really are deadly inside of the presuppositional camp when you're asking someone else to justify their assumptions. We can do it in Christianity. They can't do it outside of, of Christianity. Right. And, and, and the interesting thing, too, is, well, I think an important thing to 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 remember when you're doing apologetics is also recognizing that sneaky shifting of the burden of proof. How do you, how do you know? Well, how do you know they are? <laughs> well, wait a minute. <laughs> you made an assertion. You, you made that. a statement, validate the statement. And That's I can right. say, how do they are? And say, well, what kind of slavery, for example, what kind of slavery are you talking about? Because right. in the Bible, property is to be returned to the owner. But if right. a slave is considered property in that sense, it's called chattel slavery. 
if that's the sense that it was, then why is it that when a slave escaped, he was not to be returned? Right, right, right. So I, and I say that to people, and they go, uh, I go, so what kind of slavery? Because there's different levels of slavery and things like that in the Bible, and they talk about stuff. And so usually what happens when I'm doing apologetics with someone in a, oh, I love the moral issue. We should talk moral apologetics. That's okay. the easiest. That's the best. Did you see my debate with Dan Barker out in uh, – I've seen all. I think I've seen all your debates. The Dan Barker debates are fun. With the, uh, uh, oh yes, my favorite. My favorite was, uh, you know, he he equated evil with that which uh, with that which brings harm, and so you you gave the example of a woman who's put under when she's at the dentist, and the dentist has his way with her, and then she gets up. She's not harmed. She doesn't know what happened to her. Is it right or wrong? And so you kind of held his his feet to the fire. On yep. his view, it would have to be—he would have to admit in front of a live audience that there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I don't remember how he responded to that, though. Uh, not well. <laughs> um, I said this, you know, I used his arguments, um, and I—I uh, I did this. I said, in your debate with Peter, I have written down. I had his notes. Sure, yeah, the notes there. Yep. And we can get into the moral one, but in your debate with Peter Payne at the University of Wisconsin in March 2005, at about 35 minutes and 40 seconds in. <laughs> This is what I actually said to him. You said that, quote, telling a lie can sometimes be a very good moral thing to do, close quote. You also said in the Q&A section of your lecture to the campus atheists and secular humanists at the University of Minnesota in October of 2006, second part, uh, 35 seconds in, that, quote, the action that results in the minimal amount of harm is the right action, period, close quote. Right. My question, Mr. Barker, since you say that the right thing to do is the action that minimizes harm, that lying can be good, and that religion causes great harm, because you said that, then shouldn't you lie in our debate in order to win the debate so you can convince people that religion is harmful, thereby reducing overall harm in the world? And you know what the audience did? They went, ooh. <laughs> There's no way out of that that question. That's a Matt Slick objection. Only you would only you <laughs> would use that example so intricately. Uh, that 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 that's good. And there's nothing. There's really nothing you could. I mean, he'd have to admit on his own standard that's precisely what he would have to do. And I think a lot of atheists don't understand too is bringing up moral conundrums doesn't answer the question as to whether something's objectively good or bad or whether it's relative or whatever. Okay. You know, yeah. Okay, got something for you. Got this yeah. coming on my one of my shows someplace lately saying that all morality is subjective. Now, it's an absolute statement. And I said, okay, prove to me that all morality is subjective. And he said, morality, see how you're going to respond to this. Good, I answered it. But I see, he said, we have subjective morals. God has subjective morals because God's morals are subjective to himself. Therefore, all morals are subjective. And if they're all subjective, they're not absolute. We don't have to really trust them. So now what do you mean by it, uh, morals are subjective to God? I'd ask for a, I would ask for him to clarify that. It comes out of his own essence, his own preferences. He decides whatever he wants. They're subjective to him. If he decides, well, they are. In other words, God is, is the standard of goodness. And so if he issues his law, which reflects his good nature— and commands his creatures to obey that it would be it would be an obligation on our part to live in accordance with those laws and those laws would be good because they issue from his his ultimate good nature so they are objectively good because god is objectively good and it is an objectively good thing for us to live in accordance with those things because as creatures we'd be obligated to live in accordance with how god has commanded that we should live 
So I don't see how that, you know, it, I, I wouldn't apply that it's subjective to God because you're, you're talking about God doesn't have this moral system that he has out here. It's a reflection of who he is and who he is is binding on image bearers that are required to live in accordance with what he's commanded. In other words, as creatures, we wouldn't even be able to define goodness without appealing to his to to the objective nature of his own essence. There you go. So yeah, I, I don't. You're right. Yeah, go very good. Very good. So what I I told him, and there's different ways of saying the same thing. I said, well, in the sense that you're defining it, then by your definition, of course, right. it's objective. Right. Right. And then right. I think it's objective, but it doesn't mean that the morals that he reveals are not absolute, since. God is immutable and absolute right. and transcendent. And therefore, the nature of those morals revealed out of his character also take on the properties of, of transcendent uh, absolute truths. Therefore, we are the ones obligated to follow them because there can be no others, and that's it. Right. If God were to say, if God were to say love is good, it's objectively true. Even if that's subjective to himself, like I'm the essence of love and I know love is good because it's consistent with my nature. If he were to tell me love is good and we ask the question, is love objectively good? Yes, because it is from whose perspective? Well, well, God, it would be from God's perspective. And to answer that question, to say whether it's to himself, say again, I'm going to play the other side a little bit. Is it to himself? I can't hear you. Is it objective in relation to himself or subjective? We should define subjective and objective right now. Right. If we were to say something is objectively good, then we're saying that it's good independent of anyone's opinions of it. Now, if God were to say something's objectively good, all he's saying is that the thing that he's calling good is a reflection of who he is. And so there's a subjective element to it, but there's also an objective element to it. For example, I could have a subjective opinion, but my subjective opinion is either objectively my opinion <laughs> or not. You see, so even my sub, even subjective opinions have objectivity to it, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. I understand. But here's the now let's just work with it some more. I mean, what he was saying then, I thought it was an interesting idea, but it helps clarify other issues because the morality that God reveals is not it, out of the euthyphro dilemma, and I explain what that is for people. Uh, the euthyphro dilemma is deals with morals. Does God recognize that there's a statute of moral set out there to which he's obligated to follow? No. If that's the case, then God is subjected to something outside of himself. Right, right. But the other side is, well, if he just decides, uh, that's good, uh, that's bad, just because he does, it's arbitrary, then God's whims are what makes something moral, and something could be morally good or morally bad, Either way, it doesn't make it's not intrinsically, and right. they call that the euthyphro dilemma. It's a false dichotomy because, as you've already very well stated, the issue of the morality emanates out of its character, which right. is character is absolute, eternal, immutable, uh, and transcendent, and so therefore the morals themselves. So it's a third category, and that's why the euthyphro dilemma just falls flat on its face. Right. So, all right, and incidentally, I did. Well, we can get back into the question that I developed for that debate, which I use with every atheist, which that stumps them on the issue of absolute morality. We get into the issues with, of logic with them, and I'll ask them. I'm, I'm kind of shifting here. We can go with sure. it. But um, I'll say statements are either true or false. It's called the third law of, of logic, the law of excluded middle. So I am a man. True. Okay. I am holding my phone in my hand. True. I am pregnant. False. false. I am living right now in Africa. 
False. Okay. False. Statements are either true or false. And I got him to admit that that's the case. All right. Well, then is the statement true or false and has a moral value to it? The statement, it is always wrong for anyone to torture babies to death merely for one's personal pleasure. And I asked this of him because he said he could find an exception to any moral absolute, thereby demonstrating that God doesn't exist because the implication is the Christians would say that moral exi- moral absolutes exist because there's an absolute mind, absolute transcendent God. And he said he could find an, uh, an exception to any one of them. And I gave him this and he couldn't find an exception to it. And so he was stumped. And so basically that proves uh, that his worldview is false by his own admission, but he won't, won't recant. But nevertheless, so he used the combination of, of the truths of absolute the laws of logic in the statement issue with a universal moral application, always true for everyone. And then you stop. And so this is one of the things I'll use to demonstrate that there are universal moral absolutes. Nevertheless, here's a question I'll ask somebody. And I'll say, you know, pick up any object. Is this cup, it's a little espresso cup, which coffee in it. Is this cup morally good or bad? And it's a non sequitur because an object doesn't have morality to it. Right. If I were to throw the cup at a person, is that morally good or morally bad? Well, well, now the the person is throwing it, and so the person has moral values that he needs to adhere to. So you're you're a moral agent throwing an an amoral object. <laughs> right. An amoral, not right. immoral, but a which means without the negative. Right. Right. In that sense, so it doesn't lack morality in any way, shape, or form. It's just what it is. So then we talk about the issue of morality. So is throwing an object at somebody moral or not? Or if I, I use what I normally use is I slap somebody. Is it right, morally right or morally wrong for me to slap the person? Depends why you smack them. It depends on the intentionality. That's right. Because if I don't like your haircut, which isn't much of a haircut, and I slap you, then that's not a good reason. But if, I'm, if I see a really bad, uh, you know, a super venomous spider on your cheek and the fat, I see it arching up in a standard attack mode, and I just go whack. Then it's a good thing I've done. But right. the exact same action gets has different moral value because of the intention. So morality is necessarily tied to intentionality, at least on our view. And the intention must be in accord with what the objective moral standard says are intentions that would qualify them as good or bad. So we right. can intend to do something, but whether that intention is good or bad is needs to appeal to an external moral standard, an absolute standard, which issues from the very nature of God. Right. Exactly, exactly correct. I was going to go to that next step. Perfect. People have to understand that intentionality deals with sentient beings. And since we're made in the image of God, there's a moral action to everything that we intend to do. Anything and everything we intend to do, tie our shoelaces, whether we eat, whether we tithe, whether we, whatever it is we do, there's an automatic moral connection to every intentionality. See, that's a funny thing that you said that because I agree. But getting back to the Molinism thing, I remember in your discussion with Dr. McGregor where he referred to actions that were morally neutral, which we disagreed over. That there are no such thing as as, as, as morally neutral actions, since we are to do everything unto the glory of God. Everything, and it can be. And I challenged him on that. I think he took a step backwards on it, but he's a very bright guy and, and humble guy as well. But nevertheless, every action has a moral 
value to it because it's intentioned by it, by somebody who's living in God's world and is acting in a manner that must be consistent with God's ultimate decrees in his prescriptive, decretive, permissive wills aspect of his desires. So everything has a moral value that we do. And people don't right. like that. And, and you're right. There's no neutral moral action. Now, just because I might not be able to identify the moral element to it. So, for example, if someone were to say, is it moral? Is it a moral choice to choose to eat a hot dog or a hamburger? Just because I can't identify in what way it's moral doesn't mean it's not. Since, for example, it may be moral when I'm choosing between things, my intention. I might not even be able to identify the specific intentions that I have at a moment. But because you got it is moral because it has better. to do with life and you're eating and sustaining life. So there you go. It's That's moral. a good answer. And it's <laughs> an eating hamburgers is morally superior to, to eating. Um, it is. Nothing. Especially when my wife cooks them. There we go. That's right. <laughs> so, and this is what surprises a lot of Christians that every action has a moral value. They assume the atheistic view unintentionally. It's another form of humanism in the church of morally new, neutral actions. And there can't be. Right. The atheist wants there to be morally neutral action so that they can, in their subjective experience, decide what is moral and what is not moral. Right. See, this, this, folks, this is how athe- uh, Eli and I actually have conversations on the phone. So it's all dialectical? Uh, not all. Okay. But except except when I'm talking on the phone, I'm usually pacing and walking around my office. Uh, this is this, It is difficult for me to talk and sit still. For this long, I usually walk around. My wife asks me, "What are you? What are you doing?" I'm up with my uh, my little earrings you called my AirPods. I'm they just called me ear- yeah, earrings. Yeah, I'm just walking around my house. <laughs> well, I got an idea. Maybe we could have people ask questions if they want. Anybody want to ask any questions or anything? I got one. Okay. All right. Uh... This is, uh, well, I don't know if I should ask you. It's kind of hardcore. Yes, Let me we ask you personally. <laughs> well, personally, then we got to get off the mic here. But um. it's, it's something that's bothering me. I don't know. I, it's like, um, okay, you know the, the end times are unfolding, right? Yeah. Should we resist the one world government? Yes. Well, that, well. That question is already packed with eschatological presuppositions. Huh? <laughs> uh, you know, to even say that we're in the end of time already assumes, already assumes particular interpretations of verses, uh, chapters like Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. Uh, and some people look, look at those. This. Look at this. Take the stone out of my hand, grasshopper. <laughs> well, well I'm, I'm serious. No, but, his time. Yeah, it, it is, is Matthew 24, uh, Luke 21, and Mark 13 are those, quote, great tribulation passages. And and asking the question already assumed. Matthew 24, Luke 17, Mark 13. But go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Probably, yeah, no. I give the stone back. <laughs> I give the stone back. <laughs> but, but the question uh, presupposes that we're living in the end times based upon, if I can, if I can just assume, based upon what we see around us happening. You, you mentioned one world government and things like that. And that's not necessarily the case. It really depends on where you land eschatologically. Well, yeah. I mean, personally, I, I, you I, talking I, I, I see restroom. it pretty clearly. I mean, with the EU and everything, it looks pretty 
plus the technology is available now to sure. uh, to do the uh, whole one mar- one you know one world government mark of the beast. They're always talking about the Navy now has commercials where they're saying a global force for good. I mean, they're they're not even talking about the U.S. Navy anymore. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty obvious. And but, the thing that's bothering me is like. And then there's a lot of churches compromising, which is predictable. Mm-hmm. They're, they're also just no borders. We don't need nations anymore, though. It's okay for Israel, but not anybody else and all this other stuff. Okay. Um, so it's kind of like, it, it doesn't look like a whole lot of people are resisting. And I've always, yeah. as a Christian, I felt bothered. Like, is it supposed, you're just supposed to roll with it because it's been prophesied or, or should you um, resist it? Well, I think it's very important to ask yourself whether we are what we're seeing around us are in fact things that are predicted in Scripture. For example, you made mention of technology. Well, where in Scripture does it talk about the development of technology as being a sign that we're living in the time where a mark where a mark of the beast can uh, can come about? I don't think that the scripture actually says that. For example, people appeal to um, catastrophes like earthquakes. Look, we're experiencing many more earthquakes. And so, look, this is an indicator of living uh, in the last days when, in fact, the Bible does not say that um, the end will be preceded with more earthquakes. It just says there will be earthquakes in various places. So we have to be careful what we, uh, you know, when we interpret scripture, we don't want to interpret scripture with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. We don't want to do what's called newspaper exegesis, where we look at world events and impose those events onto certain texts that we think are teaching what we think they're teaching. Um, so, so I would argue um, that a lot of things that people think are in our future, um, a, a lot of it is actually referring to something else. Now, I know that this is another discussion and people have different views, but that's what I meant by uh, when you asked the question, it kind of assumed already a, a theological perspective as to how all of this hashes out. So again, that's that's a broader conversation. Okay. Well, I, I just personally, I yeah, I, I don't know if I can agree with you, but uh, I think it's it is playing out and it's getting close. And they they're 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 bringing up a, a lot of it on their own impetus. The, the like like day. what? Can you be a little more specific so I can follow along? We're always talk about global this, global that. I mean, it's it's. It's uh, it's in the language. It, they don't want any national boundaries, obviously. Um, it, it's it's heading towards global. It's all it's the rhetoric is in, in is everywhere. In and which which the, scripture would you understand referring to a one world order and things like that? Well, the mark of the beast. You know, you can either buy or sell. It seems to be out of the reconstructed uh, Roman Empire, but you know, people aren't sure it's part of the eschatological view of a lot of premillennialist uh, options. Well, but you say, you say the, a re, a re, um, what'd you say before? Uh, a reestablished Roman empire. Intelligence is, it's a part of the whole. Right. But, but again, to say that artificial intelligence is a part of it, again, that one doesn't get that from the text of scripture. That's, that would seem to be an assumption. Even what Matt just said about a reestablishment of a Roman empire that already presupposes uh, certain theological commitments that would have to be argued for. 
So, um, for example, I see in, uh, you know, the predictions that are made in Revelation, and when you read all of the New Testament, there is, there's a lot of talk of what we'd call the time text, things that were to happen near, soon, at hand. Um, and so I tend to think that a lot of what we're, a lot of people are expecting in the future were actually something that was relevant to the early church who first read uh, the New Testament corpus, especially a book like the book of Revelation, where right at the beginning, it says, blessed is the one who reads and, and, and uh, you know, adheres to, to the words of this prophecy for the time is near. So a lot of these judgments and things that we kind of think are in our future, I think there's strong indication that a lot of it actually was referring to something that was right on the cusp for the early church when they first read those, uh, you know, the New Testament documents. Hence, partial preterism. Right, right. Now, not everything, of course, but but even the like the tribulation. The, when you take a look at the tribulation, you know, you have this belief that there's a seven-year tribulation that we're waiting for. You don't have in the New Testament this clear teaching of a, of a seven-year tribulation. That actually comes from a particular interpretation of the book of Daniel, and that uh, again, we'll open up a whole nother door of discussion. Uh, and Don't forget Daniel 2.43. That's a very significant verse eschatologically. Okay. I'm going to read it to you. I'm just sure. throwing it out, salt and pepper in the problem and the issues because it's a lot of fun. A lot of people don't know this, but Daniel 2.43, this is Nebuchadnezzar and the dream and the statue and everything. And sure. in that you saw the iron mixed with the clay, they will combine with one another in the seat of men, but they will not adhere to one another. That exegetically, it looks like the they can't be people. They, what do you mean? It, I've heard this, I've read this, that the Hebrew construction seems to imply that they will combine with one another in the seed of man. And what does that mean? That's the question. It seems to imply that the they are not humans. Okay, but what does that have to do with the timing of of those things that we were talking about? I'm just throwing it out for fun. Yeah. Well, because a very because a very interesting thing is in the book of Daniel, the angel tells Daniel to seal up the words for the time is not yet, and then until is it, he gives a condition with it. Okay, until uh, what is it? Uh, uh, prophecy and uh, what does he say? Oh, oh man, people go to and fro, and knowledge increases. Knowledge. Right, 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 definitely, right. Say again? Which is nowadays it definitely. Well, but yeah. knowledge increased from the time it was first uttered to, you know, the first century. Okay, I'll leave you with this first. In 12.4. There's, it says the image will speak. That's a perfect representation of AI. It is. It could be AI, but it could also be. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> okay. I mean, it's like saying like the, the, the people see, hel- you know, fighter helicopters in the book of Revelation. Again, I think. Uh, if we are to interpret those we symbols, AI newscasters right now. I mean, that's sure, sure. I'm aware. I'm aware of the the AI stuff. Here's the problem, though. If that's what it's saying, then those prophecies are completely uh, useless to the people who first read it. I mean, take a look at the Book of Revelation. It's written to seven actual churches, that's and if it's actually, I don't know if they are useless because there's prophecies in there that are useless to us nowadays. So I mean, you know, yes, but these are pertaining. These are pertaining to a judgment that that was on the very cusp for those people. That's why you have the words near soon, the ends of the ages are, are, are upon us, these kinds of things. These events that, that, we, that you're describing are actually described as near and soon for the people who first heard it. People ask me, you know, are we living in the last days today? Uh, I think that's a very interesting question because in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, um, the writer of Hebrews written over 2,000 years ago says that 
uh, in these last days, God has revealed himself through his son. So he actually calls the days in which he's living the last days. Um, so again, we've got to be very careful what we take from the text and apply to us. We can't do that if there's not warrant for doing that. Now, obviously, it's going to depend on how you interpret certain passages in Scripture, of course. All right, so it's 8 o'clock my time, which is 10 o'clock your time, and we're supposed to end. We can do it from sure. 6 to 8. So there's going to be a, an after show if you guys are interested. John uh, Wilkins, are you going to p- provide an after show? If you are, you can put the, uh, the link up, and I'll do a couple things. I'll maybe come back in. You want to join us in the after show? Say again? You want to join us in the after show, Eli? Yeah, I'll stick around. All right. So what we do, we close this one out, and then we open. It's like another URL, another link we're going to go to. Okay. Are you just going to send it to me on my uh, email? Tell you what. I don't know if John's listening, but John would have to send it to me, Facebook me if you want, and then I'll, I'll email it to you. But I got to check on my wife. Got to check a few things, and then so it might not be for right. fifteen minutes. And what's the name of the gentleman that that I was just talking to? <laughs> Tony. Hi, Eli. Tony. Sorry, I, I just wanted to say uh, thank you, and it was a pleasure to have you for the yeah, short while you were there, bro. Um, just keep an open mind about the end times. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I, and it's a, it's awesome that those are super interesting topics, but they they're definitely not topics that we should divide over. So I'm I'm totally fine with you know, different perspectives and things like that. Yep. Especially mine, which is no one else holds to. That's a problem. <laughs> That's right. So let's do this. John, uh, you get a post up. I don't know if he's ready. It's called, um, what's it called? So John's thing. It's a, uh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to, I'll be back in like 10 or 15 minutes and I'll, uh, cause John often, well, I'll, I'll text him and he'll actually, uh, actually Matt, yeah. my, my, um, I think I actually can't stick around. Okay. I just got a text here. Um, yeah. I'm actually a teacher, so tomorrow I actually have to wake up early. I just remembered. <laughs> tomorrow. I'm sorry? What are you going to teach tomorrow? I teach at a Christian private school. I teach all the Bible classes. So I teach um, apologetics, doctrine, and all that kind of stuff to, like, middle school, high school students. That's good. Yeah, well, listen, you- Elias. Elias, before you go, I just want you to know that Trent Horn is going to be having a podcast uh, one day uh, a week uh, starting, uh, I believe, this month. And you're a very good apologist. If you're interested, he's uh, wanting to debate others. Uh, Matt Slick is invited as well. Uh, that's Trent Horn of Catholic Answers Live. Sure, I'm familiar with, with Horn. Yep. Well, thank you for that. I'll, I might check it out. Thank you. Yeah, it'd be great. I want to do a formal debate with one of their, their biggies sometime on a, on a specific topic. We'll see how that goes. But yeah. you know. with, all, with all due respect, though, I, I think Dr. White um, handed Mr. Horn, uh, <laughs> handed him, uh, well, let's, let's just say he gave him a proper whipping on the topic of whether one could lose their salvation. Now, of course, I'm biased because I'm Protestant. but um, And you read the Bible and believe it. Yeah, I've listened to a lot of debates, and uh, it was a very good debate, but I, I do think that the Protestant perspective came out on top, um, but just saying. But thank you for the invite. All right, man. I want to shut it down. i got to feed the cats. got to do a couple of things. I'll see if I can find the link. You won't be on anyway, and we'll see what happens. I might go into uh, Discord. In a, a, I think that's what I'll do. I'll look for the, the after show and go into Discord also. We'll see what happens, okay? All right, and I just want to say real quick, thank you, Andrew, if you ever listen to this, for allowing me to tag along. So take care, guys.
It was fun. I think people are enjoying you and I interacting because we can do some good stuff. Yeah, good stuff, man. I appreciate it. All right, man. God bless, buddy. We'll All right, you. God bless. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Cat. <laughs> <laughs>